US Census has noted that the average size home in the United States has grown by 62% in the last 50 years. 62%. Houses across America, on average, have actually doubled in size. Why, why, do, we, why do we need more room? Well, one, we can. America, right? It seems very American. And so uh, we, we love the extra space, but also we need the space to hold all of our stuff, and we love our stuff. One study noted that we've actually consumed, we, we consume twice as many goods today than we did 50 years ago. And in fact, a New York Times posted an article recently uh, that Americans use currently 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space to store all the extra stuff that don't fit in our homes that are twice as big as they were 50 years ago. So with all this increase in stuff, you would think that we would be so incredibly happy and joyful. Well, the reality is, is that, especially coming off of a pandemic, that anxiety is seemingly at an all-time high. And that stress is extreme and, and the struggle is real. And so where do we land? How do we talk about the pursuit of stuff and the pursuit of things and, and going after money? Now, I know money, especially in church, is a sensitive topic, right? Because, oh, the churches are after my money. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I'm not even asking anything from you today. But instead, I actually have something for you. Because if money is one of the top stressors in our relationships today, don't you think we should look at it through the lens of Scripture and what God has to say? Because God wants to be Lord of your entire life. That means that God wants to have your marriage and, and, and to impact how you raise your kids and how you work and your integrity and your finances. That if finances are one of the most stressful topics in relationships today, repeated studies of married couples show that money is one of the top three stressors. And the topic of whether you have or have not can be a difficult circumstance. And so today, I wanna to talk to you about finding balance. But before we do that, I want you to write this down. I want you to write this down. That money is a great tool, but a horrible God. Money is a great tool, but a horrible God. You see, good things, when placed in the God seat, make for horrible idols. This, this table, okay, this table is neutral. I don't, I don't think too many people walked in and had an emotional attachment, good or bad, to this table, right? Right now, it's helpful. It has my notes. It's got my Bible. It has your coffee right now, right? Now, if I picked up this table and chucked it at someone, now all of a sudden it becomes very dangerous, okay? I say that because this table is an object. It, it's amoral, meaning that it's neither moral or immoral. Money is an object. The difference, though, is that we are emotionally tied to the things that we want and buy and spend, and so we struggle with money. But money itself is not bad. 
having money, not having money is not bad. Money is a great tool to do great things, but it makes a horrible God. Why? Because money cannot give you what it promises. Money cannot ease your conscience. Money cannot forgive your sins. Money is not your savior. Because I know plenty of people who don't have money, plenty of people who do have money and come to the end of the day and realize that it was not enough. It's almost like going for a hike and and really working hard to get to the top of this mountain and you get to the top and you realize that you're at the wrong one. But money never promises meaning and purpose. It doesn't. But when we attach our purposes to money, we attach our value, our identity, what happens when someone loses it? What happens when someone has more? What happens when someone has less? You know, riches can be seen almost subjectively because it seems like we never have enough, that people always have more, but then also people always have less. Did you know, though, that six billion people in the world live on less than $13,000 a year? So based on those standards, pretty much everyone here in the room, everyone in the United States, as we know it, for the most part, are considered on a global scale as rich. Today, I want to talk about finding balance. Because when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you're struggling, when you're worried, your life feels out of balance, doesn't it? I heard this from a pastor, and I kind of want to share this with you, though, that if you are trying to achieve physical balance, it requires three things. So in other words, like if you're trying to walk across the balance beam, there's a little balance beam at our kid's playground at our park in our neighborhood. And so with Chloe, I'll walk on it, and we'll try to, you know, we create little obstacle courses or things. And you're trying to walk along the balance beam. Okay, if you're trying to do that, or, or did anybody as a kid, or maybe now, I don't know, maybe we have some balancers now, but I used to take like a yardstick, in the classroom at home and I would like hold it on my hand. And at first I couldn't balance the stick because I would look at my hand. And so I'd place the yardstick in my hand and I'd be like, ah, and it would fall. And until one day someone told me that if you look at the top of the stick and you actually look up and you have that as your reference point, you can actually make adjustments and you can balance it. And so if you're trying to achieve physical balance, maybe balancing an object, or just walking a tightrope or walking on a curb or a sidewalk or something, you're trying to achieve physical balance. It requires three things. First, it requires a reference point. If you're balancing an object in your hand, you have to look up to the very top. If you're balancing on a beam, you have to look out and pick a spot and focus on it. They say if you're feeling dizzy, um, that you actually have to have a focal point out front. That's why, in fact, if you're ever in a car, and you're reading and you're down here, it's a lot easier to get motion sickness that if you're struggling on motion sickness because too many things are moving to actually pick a spot in the distance and to stare at it and, to, and, to, and your body starts to come a little bit more at ease. You need a reference point. But secondly, if you're, if you're trying to balance something, it requires constant correction, constant correction. I was at a student trip with, with teenagers and I was in student ministry days and we were at a lake and it was at camp and we were all in canoes. And so I did the loving thing that a youth pastor would do and tried to baptize all my students with the oar. 
and just would splash and we were having fun and it was students and we were turning, but I'm not the smallest of people. And so I was turning with, with someone and then, and I, I must have shouted out the wrong way because we started tipping over because we got too aggressive trying to splash our students. And I was like, no, go left, go left. But instead of, alt, instead of turning this way, we both went left. And because we made the wrong adjustment, the canoe went over to much to the delight to our students that we had just soaked. And, and so we made the wrong adjustment. But if you're trying to balance something, it requires constant adjustment. Have you ever ridden a roller coaster or a ride at a theme park or, and you've gotten out and you feel this kind of shaky, right? And you're like, whoa. Or maybe you've had a little bit too much drink on something else. Okay, just it's a whole nother sermon. But you're trying to walk and you don't feel even. You don't have the equilibrium. You can't just go, okay, left, I'm okay. It's constant movement to achieve balance. It's not one adjustment, it's a thousand adjustments. But then lastly, it requires a clear objective. You have to have a purpose for balance. So if I'm balancing the yardstick on my hand, that is the objective, to hold that up. If I'm going across the beam, I had a destination in mind. Well, why do I share all that? Because these same three principles that apply to physical balance also apply to financial balance. I ask you, do you have a reference point for your spending. Simply put, do you know where your money goes? Because if you look, like, think about balancing the yardstick. If I'm looking at my hand, it falls quickly. In the same way, if you're looking right here financially, it changes quickly, doesn't it? Do you have a reference point? Do you know where your money goes? But secondly, do you admit that you need constant correction? How many have ever bought something and then immediately regretted it? This is why stores, grocery stores are smart, right? They put the milk in the back corner of the store. This is a whole separate sermon, but never grocery shop when you're hungry, right? I go in, I got three items I'm supposed to get. One of them's milk. I come out with 27 items and I forgot the three that I was supposed to. Like, I've, have you ever done this? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe, have you ever like bought something because you craved it in the moment or had a great picture or it had a sale? Why'd you buy it? It's on sale. Okay, but we don't need it, but it's on sale. It's great. Anyway, um, you go home and then you forget about it and then you open up your pantry one day and you're like, why did I buy this? <laughs> and if it's not your pantry, maybe it's your clothing closet or something. Like, why did I buy this? Like, we don't need this, you know? Why? Because we do that. We are impulsive. Not only are we impulsive, but you have billions of dollars, entire industries dedicated to our impulsivity to make you crave that you need this or you need that. And if you had X, Y, or Z, then you would be happy. And so if you wanna achieve financial balance, it's constant, <laughs> it's constant. And we've all made mistakes and we've all bought something or did something when you're like, ah, I probably wasn't smart. So as we make those adjustments, the important thing is actually that third step, which is a clear objective. Which for Christians, the objective for our money should be to honor God. Do you have an objective for your money? Do you have a reason why you work? Do you have a goal in mind 
as a family, as a couple, as an individual? Why do you do what you do? What do you do what you do? This, this is what is important for us to make wise financial decisions. You ever notice that when you're lost, you start driving faster? At least I do. Because I get anxious and then I feel in a hurry because I may be late and I drive faster, but I don't know where I'm going. And so I've been in the car before with my wife and, and, and I'm trying to go somewhere. It's like, where are you going? I don't know, but we're making great time. <laughs> Some of us treat money that way. We don't have a destination in mind and so we just kind of drive. And where does money go? I don't know. The problem is if we treat our finances that way, if we don't get control of our money, ultimately our money, whether we have or have not, controls us. So what does the Bible actually say? Well, let's take a look into it. See, a businessman by the name of Howard Dayton in 1973 did a study and found that in the Bible, there are 2,350 references to money. Jesus shared 39 parables. Out of those 39 parables, 11 are actually connected to finances. And so I don't want you to think here today as we're talking about money, oh, he's after something. No, not, not the case. But what I do wanna do is say, okay, what does Jesus actually say? And if this is a stress point in our relationships and in our lives, what does God have to say? How can we worship God when it comes to our finances and our money? Well, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter six. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will, will be also. I wanna pause here on this phrase. I wish it said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But it doesn't. It says, where, where your treasure is, what you treasure, that's not just money here. I would even consider time and talents as well. Where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart. To put it to you in a different way. What you value determines what you do. And if you're not sure of your values, look at what you do, because what you do demonstrates what you value. And where you spend your money and how you spend your time demonstrate and shows people what you value. Let's continue reading. It says, the eye is a lamp of the body. Okay, this is a weird transition, isn't it? He's saying, hey, um, we're talking about money, we're talking about treasure. And then he says, your eye is a lamp of a body. Hmm, well, we're gonna tie this in in just a moment. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He doesn't say money is bad. He's saying you can't put money as God. And so what I think is interesting about that 
is that he's talking about the lamp to the body. I think in many ways, our wallets are like the gateway to where our heart is, right? Because if you pause and think about it for just a moment, let's just be real. God doesn't need your money, does he? He doesn't need your money. He's not hurting. Like God's not waiting for you to pay rent so he can pay rent. Like he spoke the world into existence out of nothingness. In fact, there's a story in the gospel where he's talking to the disciples about taxes and money and he pulls up a fish. They pull up a fish and pull a coin out of the fish. It's crazy. Like, like God can do what he wants when he wants, however he wants. So why does God even talk about money if he doesn't need our money? Here's what I believe to be true, that God doesn't want the money out of your wallet. He wants the idol out of your heart. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He wants your everything. He doesn't want someone to be in his place as God because money's not gonna save you. Jesus does that. Paul goes on and he writes this in, in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter six. And I love this because the first passage we read is about people who pursue it. And the second passage is actually people who already have it. So he talks about the haves and the have nots. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Man, if you're looking to mark a verse, mark this one down. First Timothy 6, 6, because this is the formula for financial balance. It's not just contentment, because we've maybe met those people who really don't care and they just kind of freeload off everybody else. Oh, sorry. Um, and so they go, right? Oh, money's not important. Hey, can I borrow 10 bucks? <laughs> okay. So he's not just saying contentment, but he's saying godliness with contentment equals great gain. So pursue the things of God, contentment in your heart, and you will see gain in your life. It says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. So for those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a happy verse, isn't it? What if you use that verse to share to someone? You're like, you know that person that's really greedy? That coworker, that boss, that employee that just annoys the snot out of you, right? That's always in it for themselves. And you just, this, this week, just try Just like, hey, I was reading the Bible. First Timothy chapter six, verse nine, and I thought of you. Just leave it at that and see if they read it, right? This, this is a scary verse, isn't it? In verse 10, it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not money itself, it's the love of money. It is through this craving that some, so not all, not all people fall into this, but some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So you see this, this craving, this go after, that people in the name of greed, instead of the name of God, fall into all kinds of sins pursuing this money, climbing this mountain that they think will save them, but it does not. You know what you never had to teach your children growing up? You never had to teach your children to be selfish. Hey, honey, 
When a kid takes a toy from you, you shout mine and start screaming. This is how you do it. No, they just naturally by default do that, right? Mine, 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 mom, dad, you took my toy, you took my drink, you took my this, like, I wanted that to sit there, you took my chair, right? Like, kids will fight over anything, anything, right? If you have a red pen and a blue pen, and the first child picks the red pen, what does the second child want every time? The one that brother or sister picked, right? Well, we don't grow out of that. We just become adults and the stakes become higher. <laughs> and so we just want, and we do things, and we want this and that. And Paul's saying, look, if you go down that path, it leads to destruction. It's not that money is evil, but the love of money when you put money in the God spot, it leads to bad places. So some people might sit there and go, ah, aha, see? The riches, the wealthy, oh, they're so bad, they're so evil. Except they're not. <laughs> you actually have multiple examples in scripture of people who had wealth who used it for the kingdom. David, a man after God's own heart, was the wealthiest person in the world. Right? When Paul started the church in Philippi, God used Lydia, a rich businesswoman, to fund and host the church in Philippi. And so when Paul is writing to the church in Philippi in chains in prison, actually writes this verse, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a verse about contentment. And I, I feel like in this passage in 1 Timothy 6, he knows the potential objections because you have this church that Timothy is leading where you have masters and slaves, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, gathering under the unified gospel message. And so he's speaking to them. And so he's saying, look, don't just go after money. Money is not the God. Don't go after that. That can lead you to destruction. And so some people will go, uh-huh, see, see, money is bad. Well, that was verse 10, but notice what he says in verse 17. This is where we pick this back up. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. In other words, he's got an audience right there. And so he doesn't say that riches are bad. He doesn't say wealth is bad. He actually gives them a challenge. And he says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Man, that phrase, uncertainty of riches, has new meaning in light of 2020, doesn't it? He's saying, don't put your value, your identity, in something that you could lose like that. He says, but instead, but on God, who richly gives us. And then he says this, uh, who richly provides for us. He says that for the rich to do good and to be rich. Richness is not just something you pursue, but an identity you have in Christ. If you already view yourself rich in grace and love, you can enter every situation to give. It says be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may, I love this phrase, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that. You want to talk about a clear objective. How about to honor God 
and to take hold of what really is life. And so let's get really practical here because money is a great tool, but it's a horrible God. It's the number one stressor in most relationships. And so whatever you have or have not, how do we honor God? How do we pursue this? How can we biblically apply these principles into our own lives? I wanna share with you three, three ways to do that. Number one, to honor God is to give generously. To give generously. Psalm chapter 24, verse one. It says this. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You remember singing that? Anyone sing the song as a kid? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got, okay. It's a fun little song, right? To sing. But here's how we sing it as Americans. He's got the whole world, except my portfolio. He's got the whole world, except this dating relationship. He's got the whole world, except my Friday night, leave that alone. He's got the whole world in his hands, except this part, this is mine. God, leave it alone, it's mine. We, we live that way, don't we? We say, okay, God, I surrender some of me to you. Like partial surrenders don't work in battle. I kind of surrender. Well, I surrender, but I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> See, the whole earth is God's. So do we view it that way? Malachi 3.10 says this. God's speaking, he says, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. When it comes to generosity, this is one of the areas in the Bible that God actually says, go ahead, test me on it. See if you can outgive me. Because I believe personally in my heart, you cannot outgive God. You just can't. Now, there are different philosophies when it comes to tithing, and people will say this or that, but the, just so you know, the word tithe literally means tenth. So most commonly in churches, you're gonna hear people say about tithing is giving a tenth of what you earn. And you see that in the Old Testament where people would bring the tithe and offering. And then some say, well, they don't talk about it in the New Testament. Well, actually they do. In Matthew 23, 23 and Luke eleven forty two, 42, Jesus actually talks about Practices like tithing and fasting and others to continue doing. But in the New Testament, it actually goes deeper. Because more than just an amount, again, God is after your heart. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it reads this. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart. I love this right here. Not reluctantly or not under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. This is why here at the church, we celebrate and we share with you when we give. Just this week, I uh, actually got to bless another school staff on their last day, and we got to bless them and talk with the administration and bring them breakfast and coffee. And so uh, when we're here at the church, I never want you to feel the manipulated into giving or like this greedy, like you have to have this. It, it, I'm, not, I'm not impacted by that, okay? 
But what has God placed on your heart to give? And are you willing to do that? And so I can't speak to where you are as a family, but I can share with you my own personal journey. See, my wife and I started tithing faithfully early on in marriage and there in our 20s. And, and, and so we give 10% every month. We actually, for us, we set up automatic just so, because we want our giving to be automatic. Some people give it in person because they like the tangibleness of that. But for us, even early on in our marriage, we gave that, we gave 10%. And, and it was a challenge for us to do it initially. And I, we did test God on that, but we saw God come through time and time again. There was one month where we were pretty short on bills and then our dishwasher broke and it was gonna be like four or 500 bucks to fix. And we're like, well, should we just fix that or should we give? And we said, well, you know, we can go without the dishwasher if need be, we should give. So we gave that month. That next week, I got a check in the mail from the church that apparently there was an HR mistake that they were withholding something that they shouldn't. And the amount they gave me in that check that was unexpected was the exact amount to fix the dishwasher. <laughs> I, I've heard so many stories of this. In fact, there's a church member, first service. I won't name them. I'm just, because they didn't get permission to use names. But this Christmas, so this is just recent. This Christmas felt that God told them to give X amount of money to help families in need. And we're talking thousands of dollars and they hadn't done this before. And so, and I, and I didn't try to manipulate them. I didn't try to convince. Them. All I said, I said, man, that is awesome that God might be challenging you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray and ask God, what do you want me to do? And whatever he tells you, do that. And so they gave the gift and they were stressed and they were middle of a move and some finances and things there too. That next week, she emails me and she goes, wow, for the first time in my business's history, I'm getting a bonus bigger than what we gave. And I wasn't expecting it. We've seen this as an organization. I don't know if you know this. Like, so we, we tithe as a family. I'm just telling you personal experience. But we also tithe as a church. In other words, on average, we give away at least 10% of what comes in to the community. Now, a lot, everything that comes in is used for our vision to help every man, woman, and child experience Jesus. But we set aside money to give to the community without any expectation to be given back. And so, actually, I can tell you up front that January through April, as a church, we've given away over $13,000 to bless people here in this community and money that we will never see back in, which represents 12% of what's come in so far as a church. Well, when the pandemic hit last year, some of you know this, but I share in case some of you haven't heard this, that last year when the pandemic hit and we're church plan, it's scary that a pandemic hits when you're only 18 months old as a church. And we felt led by God to pay off the medical debt for 700 families in this community. And to pay off the medical debt in this community was gonna cost us $13,000. And at the time represented 50% of what was coming in for that month. So pandemic hits, everything's uncertain and God called us to give away 50% of what was coming in that month. Like, are you sure, God? Are you sure you didn't call the church down the street to do that? We said, nope, God's calling us to do that. And so we talked as leaders, as staff, we prayed about it, we said, okay, this is what God's gonna do. And so you can't outgive God. So then on Tuesday night, we committed that and we shared that with the church. But what some of you don't know is that that was Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, first email I opened up was from the Converge National Network that said, hey, I want you to let you know that in light of the pandemic and you're a new church plant, you qualified for a church 
one-time church grant and we're giving you $10,000. God had almost, pretty much replaced what we gave away within 12 hours. Now, I'm not saying this happens every time, but what I'm saying is this happens. And that for me, I can't speak for you, but for me, I believe that God can do more with nine than I can do with 10. This is how I live. And so whatever God's leading you to do on that, I want you to know that first principle, to, to give generously. If you wanna talk about people who are happy, almost every single time, you're gonna find out that that's a generous person. Because when you're generous, you, can, you give away what you already have and you enter relationships and, and, you feel, and you're already secure because money's not your God at that point. And if you wanna relieve the pressure and power and hold that has over you, find ways to give back. Because I'll tell you what it's not though. I'll tell you this, that it's not like, hey, do A, B, and C and you'll be hashtag blessed, okay? It doesn't work. Right? When you got people coming at you saying, you really need to donate to me so I can buy a second private jet. Like something's off there, right? If something goes off in your radar and like, that's not right. It's because that's not right. <laughs> and so instead of greed, choose to give to God and what he's calling you to do. Give generously. Second principle to make sure God, to money's not a God in your life is to save diligently Save diligently. Are you being wise with what you got? There are people that make tons of money, but it doesn't matter how much you make, it matters how much you spend, right? And if you're always spending more than what you make, you're always gonna be in debt. It says this in Proverbs. Here it says, uh, Proverbs 22, seven. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. You might've heard the phrase, act your age. The principle here is just to act your wage. Whatever you're making right now, spend less than that, right? To save diligently, to be wise. It's hard to be generous if you have no margin in your life. So how can you create that margin? How can you create that gap so you can have that peace of mind and where you can look to give? And if you're in a lot of debt, some of you walked in and it's, it's common, the average American has over $6,000 in credit card debt, not to mention house, car, school, all kinds of things. Understand that you're not gonna get out of debt in a day, but you can start today and you can take a step. You can put minimum payments on the largest debts and start attacking the lowest one. And as you pay that one off, go to the next one and snowball it over. You can, you can follow resources by guys like Dave Ramsey or Ron Blue and other master your money type um, templates and classes to, to take those steps. But just be wise. What is the wise thing to do? Because there are times where we're gonna spend out of impulse. But you, you, you never accidentally save, do you? Like you never accidentally make a wise decision. Instead, make that decision ahead of time to create the margin, which then in turn gives you peace, it gives you freedom, it helps you be generous. So give generously, save diligently. Number three, last one here, is live intentionally. And I leave you with this quote from Jesus, Matthew 6, 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. What if you approached your relationship, your work, your bank account with intentionality? What's your goal? What's your heart? Might not change everything, but you can start somewhere today. If you think about those three principles, give generously, save diligently, live intentionally. Our world actually does the opposite, right? We live spontaneously. Do what feels good when you want it, now you want it. You don't gotta pay for it now, pay for it later, right? Then people save sporadically. They create a system if and then. Well, if I get this, then eventually sometime down the road, I'll do this. But you never drift towards wise decisions, right? I've shared this before, but you're not like up late at night going, man, I'm craving some spinach, right? You don't drift that way. The same thing, money, you don't drift that way. Like, oh man, I don't know what happened. It got away from me and I accidentally made a super wise investment with compound interest. Like, no, like just, just be intentional, right? Don't live spontaneously. Live on purpose with a purpose. Some people save sporadically and then other people give sparingly. If you realize that God has given you all that you need, you're more generous with what you have. And that's my heart for you. Don't be controlled by the things of this world. Don't be controlled by money and the pursuit of it and the debts that, that enslave you. But instead, worship God with who you are and what you do. As the band comes up on stage, I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes for a moment. Because I know that people are in very different situations and circumstances, financially speaking. And so what I want you to do is really simple, okay? Because God's not after an amount. He wants your heart. God doesn't just want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants your relationships, your marriage, parenting, your kids, your work ethic, and your finances. And so are you willing to humble yourself before God? And so here's what I want you to do. Without compulsion, compulsion from me, without anybody else trying to manipulate or trick you, I just want you to be honest, and I want you to ask yourself this question. God, what would you have me do today? God, what would you have me do today? Because if you can be honest in that question and have the spirit in your life, I'm telling you, if you would listen to him and obey what God's placing on your heart and your mind, you're gonna see blessing in your life. But blessing is not like material possession, but instead internal peace and salvation through him. Money is not your savior. Money is not your master. You are not your worst decisions. If you've made mistakes in the past, those choices don't define you. That we have a God of love, a God of grace, a God of power, and a God of forgiveness. 
Understand that wherever you are, whatever circumstance you're in, that you can start now and you can start today. That you can experience freedom. Because God's not asking you to do anything that he's not already done. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And what did Jesus give? Everything. He loves you. We love you and we're for you. We don't want anything from you. We want something for you. We want you to be free. We want you to have peace. We want you to have joy. And that comes from knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. So wherever you are today, I just want you to be honest, to ask that question. God, what would you have me do today? And be courageous to do that. For some of you, God's speaking financially. For some of you are feeling imbalanced in a relationship or in a conversation or at the workplace. Wherever that is, I want you to give that circumstance and that situation up to him. money is a tool but it is not God so let us pray to the God who is and who is to come who loves you and loves me dear Jesus thank you thank you for blessing us thank you for giving to us thank you for talking to us about money I know it's tricky I know it's difficult but God life is stressful our finances don't have to be May we live with biblical principles. May we give generously as you have given to us. May we save diligently and be wise and be good stewards. And God, may we live intentionally. Yes, we have to make constant corrections and adjustments. But God, let us have the objective of your glory, your kingdom, and your power, God. Be present in our lives. And we give all to you. We love you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.